Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is founder and principal of Paramount Realty USA Auctions, Misha Hagani. Misha, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate this. Great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So before we talk business, um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and why did you get into this industry? I was born and raised in Long Island in Great Neck, uh, New York. Um, grew up uh, to a dad who's a commercial mortgage broker, a mom who for a little while was a residential real estate broker, and uh, some real estate in the family. So I got to see a little bit of the real estate life. Right. Uh, I always had a bit of a passion for real estate. Uh, I say a bit, but I always had a passion for real estate. I liked the tangible nature of real estate and um, just knew that I would be in the business in the future. Also knew I, would, I was very entrepreneurial, so I knew I'd be doing something entrepreneurial. Right. And uh, how I got into this business was really through a college internship. Mm. So I went to NYU Stern for uh, business school. And in my first semester, my college roommate introduced me to the uh, auction company that his firm he worked for uh, Joe Moynian, the, okay, yeah. the Moynian Group. And Joe was auctioning a building on the Upper East Side. And uh, my friend introduced me to the auction guys handling the auction of this 25-footer. I think it was on East 61st Street. Okay. And so that's how I started in the auction business in uh, college. That's awesome. An internship. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And have you always been like kind of a self-starter? Yeah, always. I was uh, always interested in... Um, Business-wise, yeah. entrepreneurially, yeah. I was in elementary school. I was selling candy. We used to we used to buy packs of uh, super lemon candies right. um, that were like I don't know, like twelve of them for two dollars, and then we'd sell them for twenty-five cents a piece, and we'd make a dollar fifty or whatever, however the math works out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was shoveling snow and um, buying and selling baseball cards, nice. and I just enjoyed transacting. That right. was really, I'm a transactional guy. I enjoy the thrill of the hunt, the getting deal. the deal, you yeah. know, chasing something, getting it done, and then having a reward at the end. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you studied finance at NYU back in 01. How did you apply this skill set of finance to your position today? So I double majored in finance and international business from Stern, uh, graduated a semester early with honors, which was, which was nice. Awesome. You know, Stern and business schools in general provide a very technical background uh, or a very technical education. So it was useful. It's been useful. But I, I truthfully don't apply the highly technical mm. nature of that education in my everyday. I would say more than anything, it's the concepts and the fundamentals mm. that I learned in, fundamentals. in business school right. that are just always there prevailing yeah yeah prevailing in the background so right. i understand certain things that you may not even need to understand to do what i do but obviously everything helps right awesome and how is going to cornell law school um helped you in your commercial real estate career today do you see any benefits from young people becoming commercial real estate attorneys before becoming commercial real estate investors uh the short answer is yes i guess i would say that becoming an attorney may actually provide a more practical education or leg up for those of us in real estate, mm -hmm. um, in part because so much of real estate revolves around contracts. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't go to law school to become a commercial real estate attorney. You actually don't go to law school to become a particular type of attorney. Mm -hmm. 
for the most part in this country, you get a JD, which is a Juris Doctor, the degree you get when you finish law school, and then you become the type of lawyer that you become. Through your work. Th through the work, through right. the practice. Mm -hmm. so, so I went to Cornell Law, I graduated in 04, and I actually got a, um, a concentration in business law and regulation, which was not common, but uh, I, I would say I've used that degree more than even my uh, finance degree okay. throughout my career, and it's been helpful. Going to a nice school, I, I would say the best part about that is likely that it gives a little bit of credibility right. uh, to your counterparts, to of whoever course. you're you're meeting with, and so on. Yeah, definitely. And can you and you worked for two years as a as an attorney? Can you kind of describe the day in the life as a corporate real estate attorney? Sure. Uh, I worked at a firm called Millbank, uh, which is a great firm, and I I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, a day in the life. Well, lawyers for the most part don't start bright and early flexible hours, but long hours. Yeah. So I would typically get to work 9, 9.30, even 10 o'clock, but I would stay as late as necessary. So 7, 8, 10, midnight, 2 a.m., mm. whatever. So it depends on like how many cases there are, the workload of... Yeah, I was a transactional attorney, right. so it depends on what was going on at work and you know how busy we were. Mm -hmm. And you know I practiced from 04 to 06, and even then where you know technology wasn't as advanced as it is today but even then most of my work was on a phone and a computer so mm. i was in the office every day but i had plenty of clients that i never met mm. and we'd close a 500 million dollar loan and i never met the borrower the right. lender we were typically lenders counsel okay um but it was mostly reading documents uh, understanding certain things advising clients um negotiating loan terms and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, negotiating title insurance, reviewing surveys, getting local council opinions, and and uh, that was mostly on the lending side. And then there was a bunch of uh, buy-sell stuff right. that we did also, which was self-explanatory. Right. And uh, what, what was it like working with clients like um, the Rockefeller family? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> it was so amazing that I never met a single Rockefeller. <laughs> um, I mean, look, my first client, the first transaction I ever worked on as an attorney was for the estate of Lawrence S. Rockefeller. Wow. And um, it sounds very cool. And as a young, I was I became an attorney at 24. I finished law school a little bit early. Um, so it was really cool as a young person mm -hmm. uh, or maybe as any aged person. Yeah. But the reality is there's no difference between representing that client and any other client. Mm -hmm. So um, the cool thing, that I think the coolest thing that I did in connection with the Rockefeller family, which, which family is a huge client of Milbanks for at least 50 years. Uh, I was one of the two attorneys that represented the estate of Lawrence S. Rockefeller in the sale of a triplex penthouse at 834 Fifth Avenue. Mm. In July of 05, that closed for $44 million. The buyer was Rupert, uh, Rupert Murdoch mm -hmm. and his wife. I believe Wendy is her first name. And at the time, that was the most expensive single family home sale in the state of New York. Oh, wow. So that was very cool. Um, and I saw the broker's commission, and it was like a million six. And <laughs> I, I was like, imagine. wow. I mean, I'm at Millbank working at a you know really good law firm, right. and I'm making X. And then this lawyer is making like Didn't 10 times X. <laughs> and I mean, but that's what brokerage is. Right. Um, coincidentally, we held the record for the highest sale price uh, in New York for like a month. 
at 44 million. Mm -hmm. And then a month later, uh, I believe that record was broken by a house in the Hamptons that sold by auction by the company that I had interned for in college. Oh, wow. And that I ended up going back to work for. Wow, that's Just amazing. a small, you know, overlap in, you Life know. has a crazy way of working Yeah, out. that's life, you know. Uh-huh, cool. 100%. And um, can you discuss a particularly challenging case that you kind of worked on as a corporate real estate attorney? Something that sticks out to you? Yeah. Um, so we call them transactions, not cases. Cases okay. are, for the most part, for um, litigators. Got it. Okay. So in transactional, I think, I think my hardest transaction was really my first um, non-real estate loan. Mm. What we did a lot of in the group that I was in, fairly nuanced, but basically collateralized the real estate portion mm -hmm. of a larger loan. So like if an energy company mm -hmm. or if some other company that wasn't in real estate was borrowing 200 million or $750 million from JP Morgan, which was a big client of ours. Mm -hmm. Uh, the corporate group at Millbank would represent or would serve as lead on the loan. But the real estate group would handle the real estate portions of that financing. Okay. And I remember the first transaction was just, I didn't understand what we were doing. Right. You know? And so understanding what our place in the larger transaction was, initially... No one really explained it to me well, so I just didn't get it right away. I see. And that was probably the hardest thing I did. Otherwise, it was it was more about time, and it wasn't incredibly complicated. It, it was just, just effort. More, yeah. It was just effort and using the skills you learn to provide the client to the service. Got it. Understood. I provide the service to the service client, the client. <laughs> of course. Understood. And um, can you kind of walk us through how your experience at Sheldon Good prepared you to be a principal in a real estate entrepreneur with Paramount? So at that auction company, the business was kind of divided into two groups. And one was a business development function, mm -hmm. bringing in the deals. And the other was called project management, more of an execution function, execute the deals. Mm. And I think for a very long time, for decades before I got there, that's sort of how the business was split. Mm -hmm. One group brings it in, another group executes. And then around the time, maybe the year before that I joined the company, or I rejoined after practicing law, the then chairman of the company had essentially created a new role, which was like um, a liaison between mm. both groups. Okay. And it wasn't common at this, I think at the time, 50 or 60 person company, boutique firm. Right. And... Um, I was the second person hired into this role. There was one person in Chicago that served this function and one in our New York office. And uh, the short of, of it is that I, I was able to work on both sides, business development and execution. Whereas, like I said, most people didn't get to do that. Just it was either A or yeah. B, and I got to do both. Awesome. And in a few years, I was able to see, I think, just because of the role that I, I, I had, right. much more and so it really fast-tracked my education of, uh, in, in that business. Awesome. And that really helped me, I think, fast-forward my growth and helped me hopefully excel uh, you know, when I started my own business. For sure. Yeah. And can you give us a little rundown of what Paramount is? Uh, what's kind of the gap filled in the market by this company? Sure. So Paramount is a prominent national auction firm. Um, we specialize in marketing and selling luxury and commercial real estate by auction. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two pillars. One is the seller and one is the listing agent. 
for the seller, our objective is to reach the widest audience, create urgency, and maximize value on a timely basis. Mm. For the listing agent, what we're doing uh, in turn is helping those listing agents because we partner with them, we collaborate with them, we don't replace them, which right. is something we used to do no longer. Uh, for the listing agent, we're helping them make it more likely their listing sells, mm. uh, helping it, um, helping them sell the listings faster. Reduce the time. Reduce the time it takes to sell. Right. And making it more likely that the deal sells direct. So no buyer broker, which means the listing broker actually is Got more it. likely to make more money make with more us money, yeah. at no cost to listing brokers. So we've tweaked and tweaked our model mm -hmm. uh, such that we think we're providing the best win-win-win for everyone involved. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. And where did Thank this you. idea come from? Uh, and what gave you the confidence to go out on your own and kind of make your dream a reality? Well, the idea of auction came from the internship in college. Right. And I'll tell you, from the first time I learned about this um, business... You were interested in it? I thought it was not just interested, but I just thought it was so much more efficient than traditional brokerage. Right. Because I had some exposure to, to traditional brokerage earlier. Right. And I just thought it was a very time-consuming and inefficient process, even though that's still, it's the main um, method for selling real estate is traditional brokerage. Right. But it's a thankless job. The job of a broker is very difficult. And, you know, technology has clearly made it more efficient, but it's still very, very inefficient. inefficient yeah. I love the, the, the uh, process of an auction because it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm. And if you implement it properly, you're going to generate market value for the client, which is the seller. Right. Um, I'll tell you actually, when, a quick story, when I first got into the business as an intern in college, I told my grandfather about the business and he thought it was smart. And he had a property that he had purchased like 30, 35 years earlier. And um, let's just say it was worth, uh, Let's just say it was worth a million bucks. Okay. And over 30 years, he had a neighbor that would call him uh, every couple of years and say, hey, Fred, let me buy this property from you for 800000 Right. And my grandfather would say, no, it's not for sale. You know, I'm not really interested in selling it. If you give me a million bucks, I'll sell it. Otherwise, right. you know, eight hundred. And uh, that lasted, let's say, 20 years. And when I told him what I was doing, he said, that's interesting. Let's try auctioning this property. Okay. So he hired us uh, when I was in college and we started the auction process and two weeks into a six-week marketing process, the neighbor called my grandfather and said, okay, okay, Fred, enough. I'll give you a million bucks. <laughs> oh, wow. Cancel the auction. Right. I don't want to compete. <laughs> I don't want to go through this process. I'll give you the million, give me the property and let's call it quits. And he did, and he sold it. And I thought that was amazing because right. it really, really served as a trigger, as a mechanism to get the guy to Put the get sense off of urgency seat. in there. Totally. Our business is all about creating urgency right. on behalf of buyers. Mm -hmm. And it worked. It worked really nicely. Awesome. Great. Sure. Um, and uh, can you walk us through the process legally uh, from day one when a property owner decides to list their asset up for auction to when the deal is closed? Sure. It's quite similar to a traditional listing broker's process. Uh, we are auction companies. We're, we're really a subset of brokerage. Okay. Uh, as far as the legal process goes, uh, we only operate on an exclusive right to sell basis. So sellers hire us. They give us what's called an exclusive right to sell. Mm -hmm. um, 
we market the property, we do all the things on the business side and on the marketing side that we do to reach buyers, create that urgency, get them into our funnel, run the process, provide access, right. tours, provide due diligence so buyers are informed, provide copies of the uh, form of the uh, contract of sale so buyers know terms of sale, and then run the actual auction. We okay. have a few different formats of our auctions. Identify the high bidder and the high bid price, and then get the buyer and seller into contract, Perfect. and then move to closing Off just like races. you would in a traditional sale. Got and how do... Uh, so the incentive for listing agents is that um, they sell their assets quicker and they get the higher, highest and best offer that they can. Right. And it started out different, you said. It did, it did. Uh, thank you for paying attention. <laughs> Not everybody does. Yeah, we used to compete with listing brokers. Right. Our pitch used to be to sellers direct. Right. Hire us, implement an auction. Cutting it's out better. the listing agent. It's, yes, cutting out the listing broker and and cutting out the traditional brokerage process mm -hmm. uh, on the premise that our model is more efficient and right. it's better for you and it's a faster way to get market price and so on. Uh, over time, we've realized that it's just a much smarter approach to partner with the listing broker to satisfy the listing broker because the reality is that the listing brokers are the ones that are in the trenches, yeah. on the ground every day, dealing with those sellers and buyers. They know the local market better yeah. than anyone else does. And they're our greatest path to scalability because it's not like every seller mm -hmm. is going to, first of all, sell property regularly. And secondly, even if they do sell regularly, they're not likely to sell by auction every time. Right. Maybe sometimes. Yeah. Whereas if we please the listing broker, by please, I mean add real value. There's more room for business. There's so, I mean, exponentially greater opportunity to scale our business Got because it. a listing broker is in the business every day yeah. of selling that assets, whatever they may be. So we pivoted that way and it's helped us scale uh, both in terms of volume and in terms of geography. Until a few years ago, most of our transactions were in the Metro New York marketplace. And we are by far the most active non-distressed auction firm in the Metro New York marketplace, which I'm very proud to say. Nice. But over the last three or four or five years, we've transacted now successfully auctioning properties all over in uh, Miami and Chicago and Philadelphia awesome. and New Mexico. And we're handling now a massive uh, 260-acre parcel in Bel Air in Los Angeles. Right one of the wealthiest enclaves on earth. Yeah. And this is 6% of all the land in Bel Air, which is pretty significant. We've got a minimum bid of $39 million for this massive property. Right. Uh, auction is next month, uh, March 15th. That's awesome. And so this this model has allowed us to grow in, in terms of both volume and geographically, which is fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. And I want to ask about um, specific deals. So tell us a little bit about how Paramount was able to step in and make a difference with the penthouse at uh, One Hanson Place. So the penthouse is at One Hanson Place. That's a, a, a building, famous building, um, famous clock tower building in, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Today it's right over the Atlantic Terminal and um, the uh, Barclays Center. When we did the auction, they were building Barclays Center. 
And that building was acquired in a joint venture between a private equity firm called Canyon, Canyon okay. Johnson Urban Funds, which uh, of which Magic Johnson is a partner right. or investor, and uh, Dermot Companies. And they bought that building, they converted it from the ground up, and they sold like 173 condos. Excuse me, they didn't convert it from the ground up. They converted it from office to residential and sold the units from the ground floor going up okay. over time. Mm -hmm. Over like three or four years, they sold 173 units going from the lowest floor all the way up. Mm -hmm. They reached out to us, which was very cool. My company was like 18 months old at the time and uh, said, we have these six penthouses, the last six units in the building. And this was 2011. And they said that we're looking to sell these penthouses on a timely basis. Mm -hmm. We're fans of the auction model. The, the words they used were, we'd like to move these penthouses as a, at, at a market clearing price, okay. which basically means auctions generate market value. Right. And we believe auctions generate market value. This is what they said, to, which, which is what they said to Got us. Um, what was really unique about that was, so we represented Canyon, this $23 billion private equity firm, and sold six penthouses in a 20-minute auction, which wow. was very cool. Okay. Um, what was particularly unique there was that these units hadn't been marketed for sale before. Right. So this was that client's first go-to-market strategy with these units. They had sold the other units with two top brokerage firms, uh, Stribling and Corcoran, I believe it mm -hmm. was, before us. So those two firms sold 173 units. They brought us in to run a you know, wow campaign, right. which we ran over 30 days. And we spent like $175,000 in uh, marketing dollars in 20, 25 days, which is a lot of money to spend in but a short quick. period of time. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that's concentrated power, yeah. you know, concentrated marketing dollars. Uh, and we generated a lot of buzz and just did very well on that sale, thankfully. And, that's and, awesome. and sold, closed out that building. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And what about 3 East 10th Street? Um, can you talk to us about how in 17 days and three minutes you were able to sell out $6.634 million? Yeah, sure. So... That is like kind of the opposite. That, that's a townhouse at 3 East 10th Street. I think it was a 28-footer just off 5th Ave, one right. building off 5th Ave. That building was on the market for a couple of years, I believe starting in uh, 08 through 2010. And um, the building was eight units, six resi, two medical offices, three rent stabilized, one rent controlled. Mm -hmm. And... They started at 9.9 .9 and over two, two and a half years, reduced the price a couple of times right. uh, down to 5.8 million with a good broker. But it was a tough time in the marketplace. Credit crisis, Lehman, yeah. Bear all had gone out of business. Uh, 2008, 9, 10. The lawyer for one of the two owners of that building, there were two brothers feuding, didn't get along. And uh, the Baldwin brothers, not the famous Baldwins, another Baldwin family, the lawyer for one of the brothers reached out to us and said, these two want to sell. Mm. They're selling by auction. They've got to sell it in the next like 25 days. Right. Can you help us maximize value here? We're asking 5.8. We set a reserve of 5.5, five, which okay. we thought was a fair market price. By the time our marketing was, it took a week to prep our marketing materials and um, uh, marketing campaign and so on. We went to market. And from the day we announced the auction, which was October uh, 6th of 2010 until the auction itself, Two which was weeks later. 17 days later, yeah. October 23rd, we ran a kick-ass marketing campaign and uh, we had like 13,000 
visitors to our website, wow. 9,000 unique visitors. We did 114 tours, 114 separate That's groups wow. toured that building in two weekends. And uh, we had 60 bidders at the auction wow. at the Chrysler building. Okay. And it was on the market at five, asking 5.8. We started the bidding at three and a half. And within three minutes, got to wow. 6,634,000 and closed it like 40 days later to a high net worth buyer. And you sold it all said and done at like a 2.25 cap rate? It was like a 2.25 wow. cap rate. Wow, yeah. insane. Projected maybe. I, yeah. think it, it, I think it was a projected 2.25 cap rate. Okay. Yeah. And um, 127 Madison Avenue, how did you sell that out after only five weeks of marketing and 20 minutes of bidding? So that was our first auction after I founded Paramount. Uh, and I'm very proud of that assignment. It was the first time a developer, this is, the auction was June 27th of 2010. Okay. It was the first auction by a condo developer in Manhattan in over 20 years. Right. And um, similar to the one Hanson Place penthouse auction, which we did a year later, uh, we spent like 130 or $140,000 over like 30, 40 days. Mm -hmm. And we actually marketed, we had six condos in that building, five floor throughs and one penthouse. And we marketed those five floor throughs right. on an absolute auction basis. Absolute auction means no reserve. Mm -hmm. Highest bidder wins no matter what. So even if the highest bidder bids a dollar mm -hmm. and no one bids more, the seller is technically promising oh, a sale. Okay. That's very compelling. And uh, that one got a lot of hype and uh, it was our first auction, like I said, and it was covered extensively by the New York Times, by Bloomberg, and by many other publications, by ABC Eyewitness News. I remember that was a phenomenal, uh, ABC Eyewitness News coverage of that was phenomenal for our business at the time. Right. And honestly kept the phones ringing for like three or four days off the hook. Um, the, the press on that was significant. The marketing was, was significant. And we had like, again, 12 or 13,000 uh, visitors to the website. We had 733 groups tour six condos wow. in four weekends. Wow. <laughs> so we had red carpet and uh, velvet ropes and security guards wow. uh, manning the security manning the, uh, the open houses uh -huh. for four weekends and uh, 733 groups. We had 400 people at the auction, wow. which was at the Roosevelt Hotel on 45th and, Manis and Madison. And we sold out six condos in like, 20 or 30 minutes and, and closed out Insane. that building also. Yeah. Wow. What was interesting was at that time, again, credit crisis, very challenging time in the marketplace. The note was uh, traded by the lender to the developer mm. uh, just like a week before the auction. And a private equity group came in and paid like, I forget the exact number, but paid X. And based upon our sale price, they made like 25, 27%, you know, in, wow. in a in a ten day period, okay. it took another sixty days for us to close the units. So, it's a still a phenomenal yeah, ROI wild. for that yeah. private equity group for sure. Yeah. And what can you tell us anything about the uh, auction where you're working with with De Derek Jeter? So, I can't confirm the identity of the owner of the property that you're referencing, right. but uh, we are working on an auction for a, a castle type property. Okay in New York, uh, about an hour, let's say 50 minutes north, uh, west of Manhattan. And uh, crazy property, huge, I forget how many bedrooms and bathrooms, but it's a massive property, gorgeous, right. on a lake. 
uh, has a beautiful pool in uh, the shape of a of a baseball diamond. Actually, okay. nice fittingly. Though I can't deny the right, right. Uh, that I though I can't confirm the identity of the owner of that property, um, and that property is up for sale with a minimum bid of six five. And I'm looking forward to selling it. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And as far as the mixed use um, on Bowery, Andy Warhol's uh, property, mm -hmm. what can you tell us about that? So this is uh, a building. Oh, and we're handling that that property that I just mentioned, that castle with uh, a broker named Diane Mitchell, awesome okay. broker. Uh, the Bowery building is prominent because it's currently a mixed use building. It was once owned by Andy Warhol, right. which is, of course, very cool for art lovers, New Yorkers, yeah. and for real estate uh, aficionados, Both, yeah. yeah, alike. And we're we're handling that with a, a great compass broker named Sharissa uh, Sheptek. And uh, that building is at 342 Bowery. It's resi over retail. The retail is a uh, sushi restaurant called Yoshino. Mm. New York Times rated it uh, recently as the number one new restaurant in all of Manhattan. Mm. So I haven't dined there yet. Okay. I encourage uh, dining there. It's sure. like a $680 omakase uh, plate, but uh, uh, I'm sure it's fantastic. Uh -huh. That auction is in two weeks, February 22nd. Our minimum bid is $4 million, and we're looking forward to moving that too. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I saw that you also won the largest government contract of its kind throughout the U.S., um, closing 550 properties for about 100 million. Um, how did this come about, and how did how did this kind of change your company's trajectory? That was probably the most significant uh, assignment of our of our business's uh, you know history. Right. So the government, through an agency called the Governor's Office of Storm Recovery, put out an RFP in 2014. And that RFP, Request for Proposal, was for auction and real estate brokerage companies to bid on this assignment to help this agency sell right. hundreds of homes damaged throughout New York City, Long Island, uh, and upstate New York, just a handful upstate New mm. York, um, by Superstorm Sandy and two other storms. And it's part of a larger program in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, uh, basically, uh, states created their own versions of FEMA okay. to centralize disaster relief recovery efforts. Okay. And HUD gave to New York like $8.8 billion. $36 billion was administered to like 12 states. Right. New York got something like $8.8 billion. Governor Cuomo created an agency called the Governor's Office of Storm Recovery. And one of the many programs that was created or that were created to help victims of Superstorm Sandy was mm -hmm. this program called the Buyout and Acquisition Program. And essentially, the agency would buy from victims of Sandy homes mm -hmm. close to pre-storm value. Right. And the owners would take the proceeds of sale and do what they wanted. Provide they could relief. buy another home yeah. and they could buy another home or, or do whatever with, with right. those funds. Uh, but the government ended up with actually a couple of thousand homes. Mm. And they took all those homes and lumped them into two buckets. Mm. One bucket, they said, okay, these homes are in areas that are pr prone to flooding. They're going to flood again in the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. So rather than letting someone build a home in this location, they demoed them and left them as open space to mm. serve as buffers between... Uh, oceans and uh, the Long Island Sound and so on and 
residential areas for Got the it. most part. Mm -hmm. The second bucket of homes, they said, is not prone to flooding so often mm. or at all. And they deemed them worth putting them back into the private sector. Got it. So they said, we want to sell these homes in okay. an efficient, timely process. So that's where you came in. Let's sell them by auction. Got it. So we bid on this assignment. Um, to my understanding, about 15 other companies bid on this assignment, including auction companies that are that were much, much larger than our firm. Right. Uh, and including two of the top residential brokerage firms in New York City that everybody knows very well. Wow. And thankfully, we won that assignment. And we were told we won that assignment based upon our recommendations. Okay. Uh, our recommendations for how to actually implement the auctions. And um, we did a great job. We implemented six auctions over four years. At each auction, our largest auction, we auctioned 155 homes mm -hmm. in one day. And we had 150 in another auction, 115 in a third auction, a couple of 80, 90 home auctions, right. and then a couple of 25 or 30 property auctions. But what was cool was we had these massive ballroom style auctions where we had four, five, 600 bidders mm. in one room at one time wow. with bank checks in their pockets, wow. ready to bid ready to go. and buy real estate. And we have these videos up on our website. Very, very cool. You know, you're seeing hundreds of people raising their hands yeah. to bid and buy real estate. And we sold these homes individually. Right. So like 150 homes to 150 separate buyers in one day. That's awesome. Very That's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you. And so you think that you won the contract, you won the bid by kind of enticing the government with um, unique ideas and taking all your experience and leveraging that, leveraging that to create a, uh, a unique plan. I think so. Okay. I think so. When we won that assignment, um, when that RFP came out, I looked at it and I, I said, we are really the best positioned for this assignment, right. but we were not the biggest. So that was our challenge. And I said to myself that if we can win this RFP, mm -hmm. that it's enough, it's enough, right? It's enough to set everything else aside. Yeah. So it was about five weeks from the time the RFP was issued. Were you focused on? Exactly, strategy. from the time it was issued until the, the date the RFP was due. The, bids, the proposals were due on Friday the 13th okay. of, of June, I think it was. Okay. I spent five weeks like seven days Lasered a in. week, laser focused on writing a proposal. <laughs> okay. And I wrote like a 310 page proposal, 315 wow. page proposal, directly answering every single one of wow. the questions in this 42 page uh, RFP. Because all the RFP was, was a massive set of questions. Who are you? What have you done? Mm. What do you know? Give us your references. Give us uh, 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 transaction history. And then we have this many homes in these locations to sell, or we anticipate having this many homes mm -hmm. in these locations. How would you auction them? When would you auction them? How often would you auction? Right. How many homes per auction? How would you lump them? How would you group them? How would you space them out? What were the what would the terms for the contracts of sale look like? How, how would you staff them? How would right. you provide access? Each one of these questions required- Yeah, I mean, it had to be answered. So. I think we, and by we in this case, I really mean I at the time, it was really me, uh, spent the time to answer these questions thoughtfully. And I think we provided the best plan to maximize value and achieve the, the disposition objective set forth by the governor's awesome. office. Definitely. And it's the, it is the professional accomplishment that I am to date most proud of. That's great, that's Thank awesome. You. 
And um, I want to ask about uh, crypto integration. Do you see any uh, room for crypto integration into auctions? How that can play out? I do. I mean, it's a natural fit. Auctions are all about efficiency. And, uh, you know, we a couple of years ago started implementing online auctions as one of our three formats. So people click, click, buy, right? Easy. (laughs) I wish it were that easy, (laughs) but it's certainly easier. Um, And so integrating crypto just makes more efficient one more step in that process. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time. I mean, we've actually been looking into this with a crypto JV partner Mm. to joint venture and offer this exact service. Uh, As you know, the crypto world lately is... Shaky. (laughs) Shaky's... uh, (laughs) Understatement. Understatement. But, you know, there are some that have recently started off... Not recently. Let's say more than six or 12 months ago started uh, endeavoring to offer real estate for right. sale and, and compensation by crypto, consideration by by crypto, uh, I think it's just a matter of time. Got it. Understood. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? Whomever I can. Great. I try to read as much as possible. I listen as much as possible. Interviews by industry players. You know, my father always said you should really try to leave every conversation having picked up something. Right you know, from whomever. And they mm-hmm. could be younger than you. They could be less experienced. Yeah. Obviously, the opposite is more true, you know. Um, so the more experience someone has, the more likely you are to learn from them. But you can learn from anyone. And 100%. I, I love being a student. I really do. I, I think I'm a great student. I think I'm a quick study. And I do like to study people and right. businesses and see what they're doing and doing well and how I can emulate and learn from the person or, or the company or the Definitely. model and uh, what lessons I can take from experiences 100%. and conversations and podcasts and whatever. For sure. Transactions. And you, yeah. And do you think the key to that is really to put your ego aside and, and understand that you don't know everything, even if you're very experienced, you can always learn something new? 100%. I mean, yeah. look, if your objective is to succeed, your ego should be... Out the door. Out the door, pushed out the way. Right. Because... Nobody knows everything, obviously. And the more you learn, the more success you'll have. So open your eyes, close your mouth, and pay attention. Got it. (laughs) And how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your team? Hmm. Easier said than done. You know, qualitative goals are important. So it's important to say, or more importantly, to write, what you want to accomplish, and ideally by when. Right. But quantitative, more specific goals are probably more important just to hold your own feet to the fire and keep you on track. So if you're at X and you want to be at 2X within three years, then you constantly ask yourself, I'm at X, we're at X, and we need to be at 2x. How can we get there? How can we get there? Yeah. And is what I'm doing now consistent with that yeah. objective? If it's not, out the door. Don't waste your time. Got it. And if it is, then push it. And if there's one thing you could do that's more consistent mm-hmm. than, than, than the alternative, then you focus on the thing that's more consistent with your objective. Got it. So would you say that you continually analyze the processes that you're doing and see if they're actually benefiting you and your goals? Never enough. Right. I do. We do, and we 
have team meetings okay. three times a week and we set aside specific time to analyze what we're doing, how it's working, how can we uh, iterate, how can we improve. Um, I do that much more in the last few, I'm, I am much more focused mm. on that in the last three to five years, really three to five years than I ever was before. And I think it's important because of course. only by, only through this like review, a rigorous review of what you're doing, how it's working, how it's not working, okay. will you really be able to improve and cut out the stuff that doesn't work and do more of the stuff that 100%. does work? Yeah, 100%. And what makes a good leader and a good principal? I think it's important for a leader to be respected by their team. It's important to know your objectives and be clear in communicating those objectives to everyone, mm. to your, your team, your company, to your clients, to your counterparts. Because the more clarity, that, first of all, the more clarity you have for yourself, mm -hmm. the easier it is to convey that to all the, those that I just said, right. your team, your, your company, your clients, your counterparts, whoever you're dealing with. And the more clear you are to all of those parties, the more likely you are to have success. Because if you're clear to your team, then they know what they're they know working what they're, on. Yeah. If you're clear with your counterparts, then they know what to expect. And expectation is, is really paramount, as I like to say. Right. <laughs> Expect, setting up expectation is really, really key with everyone, with everyone you, you deal with. Awesome. Got it. Um, what is the most difficult real estate asset class to master, would you say, to fully understand? Probably the asset class that's, that's most hybrid between real estate and operating business, which is a hotel. hotel. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, that's probably the most difficult asset class because it's two, two separate businesses that you're trying to yeah understand. because it's not just real estate right it's really that that operating business yeah. that you that one really needs to understand in order to, to thrive in that yeah. business yeah for sure and if you had to go back and do it all over again start your career career again from scratch what would you do I would fail faster okay I would try more things sooner and see if they work and didn't work and if it didn't work say okay no problem on to the move, next yeah move on. you know um i've been conservative more conservative at times and that's part of my growth right but i've definitely tried different things and definitely failed right which is awesome because then only through experience can you learn what doesn't work and what does work right. and then speak from a place of actual um, expertise, exactly. a place of, uh, you know, f with confidence. Um, I would probably do more of that sooner. My mom would say that you didn't need to go to law school, school at all. Oh, okay. well, you know, I didn't, I don't need a college degree to do what I do. Right. So you could say that the sooner you start, the sooner you thrive, we'll it, yeah. right? Um, you can't really say, you know, I'm not going to say I wish I didn't go to school because because you don't you know how say, things how would have worked out. You never know how things would have worked yeah. out, and the schooling maybe helped me see things in a different way. Right, true. The schooling maybe helped me have more credibility, and uh, maybe it helped me grow faster and succeed faster. True. So who knows? Definitely. And um, Misha, I asked your brother this question, so I'm curious what you have to say about this. 
Um, how do you recognize an opportunity you want to go big on? Is it based on intuition or is it based on facts? I mean, a little bit of everything. I've learned through listening to some, uh, some people much smarter than me that when you look at an opportunity, one of the first things you should ask yourself is, is it, if it works as you wish, is it consequential? Mm. Is it meaningful? So if it's, if it's not, then why bother? Right, like, why spend time trying to achieve some inconsequential right. success? Because time is our most valuable commodity. So it has to be meaningful. Far. It's got to be meaningful. Got it has it. to be worth. It has to be worthwhile. The squeeze has got to be. What is the it? Juice has got to be worth. The, the juice has got to be worth yeah. the squeeze. However you want to say it, it's right. just got to make sense. It's got to be worthwhile. And maybe, you know, that's different as you grow in your career. Yeah. You know, for. Uh, for uh, an investor or a broker who's 25, mm -hmm. you know, that juice might be worth this, but later in life Over you have more bigger. success, yeah. this is not worth it. You know, you need, you need five times right. that or 10 times that to make it worth your while. Got it, understood. And what idea do you believe um, in regards to commercial real estate investment, law, prop tech, whatever it may be, auctions that many people you respect disagree with you on? Oh, that's a good one. I got a great answer for this one. Okay, great. In 1997, when I first got into auctions, nobody said much. Okay. You'll see what I mean in a second. After finishing school, practicing law, and then getting back into auctions, right. I started, I rejoined auctions August 21st of 2006. Some of my friends, and definitely my parents, said, you went to law school, you're working at this law firm, it's prestigious, you're representing right. these you know, great clients. What the heck are you doing going, <laughs> going back to auctions? Back to auctions, right. going into auctions. What is this? You're wasting your time and your energy. And that was the case until, let's say, around 2017. I would say at least 90% of every conversation that I had until 2017 ish with industry professionals, developers, owners, brokers, anyone, they would say auctions. With doubt. Yeah. With doubt. Yeah. Why auction? Why would I auction? I'm not in distress. I'm not in foreclosure. There's no bankruptcy here. Why would I auction? I'm not auction. Right. I'm not doing that. Auction's a four-letter word. I'll, one developer almost threw me out of his office, <laughs> even though they asked for the meeting or okay. they confirmed the meeting. Like there's one developer I remember. Um and I'd love to name them, but I won't. Okay. Um, but really everyone, 90 plus percent of every conversation for over a decade said no, no, Negative, no, yeah. why auction to us, uh, to me. But in around 2017, it literally inverted. And in the last five, now six-ish years, I would say more than 90% of our conversations bring up nothing like auctions are for distressed or aren't auctions for aren't flipped. auctions for it's flipped right and i could speculate as to why i think the reason why that's happened why that's happened i think it's because internet technology etc have become so much more prevalent mm. and decision makers obviously who have grown up with internet the internet and technology are now at an older age right and they're just just much more accustomed to 
more efficient processes, change. which is really all it is, change and more efficient processes. And right. there are other things that happen by auction online now anyway, and for, for a long time. Uh, so they're just much more accepting. Now our conversation, 90% of our conversations mm -hmm. don't involve the, the subject of distress or don't involve that as a hurdle. And it's more just like, oh yeah, auction, cool. Right. You know, how does this work? And frankly, our number one source of, of business it's incoming, you know, they're calling us, right. they're going to our website and downloading what they need to download and basically requesting uh, our, yeah. our uh, expertise on how to sell by auction. Right. And that wasn't the case until around 2017. And obviously that's a phenomenal transformation for our industry and for our business. And on the subject of industry, I'll, I'll just mention the two largest players in the auction space. One is a commercial online auction company and one is a luxury uh, online auction mm -hmm. company have both been acquired in the last year or two. Okay. And these two acquisitions represent the first, I'm, I'm fairly certain to my knowledge, but I'm fairly certain period, right. the first acquisitions of auction companies, real estate auction companies wow. by non-auction players in the country. Okay. So what that means is Main Street is embracing auctions too. It's going to flowing in now. Yeah. So I think we're going to continue to see expansion of 100%. this model. And we're very excited where we are because, you know, we are a prominent national firm now, but by far the most active non-distressed auction firm in the Metro New York marketplace. Amazing. And I see only upside for us. Perfect. Yeah. And um, going back, so do you think that people kind of, their initial, their initial response to a big idea is doubt until somebody does it. And then when somebody does it, they kind of fall back. They follow. There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, so it depends on the person and how quick they are to, you know, to accept innovation. I heard a podcast. I don't remember who said this, but I thought it was really interesting. This speaker spoke of some other very, very, very successful innovator who designed like uh, or redesigned um, Air Force One, mm, the president's okay. plane, and redesigned some uh, train, I forget which train it was, yeah. and redesigned certain real estate, certain buildings, iconic buildings. Yeah. And this person's philosophy was, I think the acronym was MAYA, M-A-Y-A, and it stood for minimally, uh, minimally advanced yet acceptable. Mm. If I got the acronym wrong, it doesn't matter. The idea was as follows. Say the curve is here, the market is here on some subject, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. And innovation is, innovation is past this point. Mm -hmm. You could be right way out here, meaning your idea could be way, 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 way ahead of the marketplace. Okay. And you could be right, but it may be too much. It won't be for, absorbed. It's too, it's too far ahead yeah. for the market to absorb it. Yeah. So instead of you know, being this far ahead, you need to bring it closer. And bring it closer. And when, let let the market catch up to you. Got it. And then innovate further, and let yeah. the market catch up to you, and then innovate further. The best way I could say this, of how this applies to me, rejoining auctions in two thousand and six, I was probably ten years too early. Mm. So maybe, I was, I was here right. when the market was here. I'd love to say I was really. I think I was really ahead. Yeah. And maybe I was too far ahead. So it made 10 years of my life quite difficult right. trying to get the market to catch get up. Get the to market you. to catch up. But then again, being an early mover into this space, 
allowed us to be ahead in right. the space and where we are today, which again, I think is, is pretty cool for our 100%. niche. Awesome. That's very interesting. Thank you. And what does retirement look like for you? What was that word? Retirement. I know. Doesn't it, exist? It exists. I mean, <laughs> I joke that I fantasize about being like, kind of being like Larry David. Okay. Um, for in part only. First of all, I'll never, I don't, I can't imagine ever not working. That's right. the truth. But I imagine being hopefully so successful that I don't have to work and that I could spend some of my time like Larry David drifting <laughs> and making big deals of nothing um, just because I have nothing better to do. Right. And that's the dream. <laughs> and, and maybe walking the streets of LA and visiting, you know, restaurant after coffee shop, after bagel shop <laughs> and reading the newspaper and hanging with my wife and right. traveling as much as I can and so on. Awesome. Uh, but I'll never, you know, I can't imagine ever stopping work. Um, and, in, and on a more serious note, I've always loved teaching mm. and I would love to be involved in education somehow, maybe right. some sort of adjunct professor, awesome. um, maybe at NYU or Columbia, something here. Yeah. Um, and uh, philanthropy would be, you know, I've always had things that I do to help. Uh, I've been involved in a bunch of nonprofits, one for uh, 20 years, over mm. 20 years. What are we, 2023? So yeah. one for over 20 years that's uh, near and dear to me. And uh, that's what that's what awesome. retirement looks like for me. That's great. And maybe a second home in uh, a warm place. Or even a third. Sure. <laughs> or a third, yeah. 100%. And I have my final question to wrap it up. Sure. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? Take it easy. Okay. Uh, continue to bust your butt, mm -hmm. but take it easy also. So work hard, play hard, which has always been my motto anyway, right. but take it easy on yourself. Don't take it so personal. Mm. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's life. Not everything's going to work. Uh, don't, don't be so upset by it. Mm. Just hurry up, innovate, do better next time because failure is a necessary, evil. necessary yeah. evil, but I would say step on the path okay. you know it's like just part of life yeah. so and i'm not even talking about failure you know i'm a little bit of a perfectionist so everything that wasn't perfect got it you know drove me nuts forget the driving you nuts if it's not perfect it's not perfect do your best make it perfect and go on and do the next thing you Beautiful. know that's it amazing